0: Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 293 with Denise Dudley. Denise really goes deep into talking about body language and the research and the science behind it, as opposed to just opinion and the practical implications of it. So I think you'll enjoy hearing from Denise as we cover one, how to smile more genuinely two, postures for enhanced communication and three, the powerful impact of speaking with a lower pitch. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F293. Now here's Denise's story. Denise Dudley is a professional trainer and keynote speaker, author, business consultant, and founder and former CEO of Skillpath Seminars, the largest public trading company in the world, which provides 18,000 seminars per year and has trained over 12 million people in the US, Canada, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, and the UK. Denise holds a Ph.D. in behavioral psychology, a hospital administrator's license, a preceptor for administrators in training license, and is licensed to provide training to medical professionals in the U.S. and Canada. She's also a certified AIDS educator, a licensed field therapist for individuals with agoraphobia, and a regularly featured speaker on the campuses of many universities across the United States, and the author of Simon Schuster's best-selling audio series, Making Relationships Last. Denise speaks all over the world on a variety of topics, including management and supervision skills, leadership, assortiveness, communication, personal relationships, interviewing skills, and career readiness. Denise's latest book, Work It, Get In, Get Noticed, Get Promoted, is currently available at Amazon.com and is receiving all five-star customer reviews. So thanks to Denise for taking some time to chat with us and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Here is Denise.
1: Denise, thanks for joining us. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, I think we have a ton of fun and you have taught many people, many skills. But I want to talk about one of your skills from back in the day, and that is your ability to catch snakes. What's the story here?
1: <laughs> well, I will tell you, first of all, that Of the many interviews I've done in my life, no one has ever asked me this on air. Uh, I love hearing that. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) It's a brand new question. I love new questions. So I really am a tomboy. As much as I'm dressed up in front of audiences all the time and all these sorts of things, in my real life, my real Denise is somebody without makeup on, with my hair tied up in a knot outside, looking under rocks, having fun, looking at frogs. Playing, swimming in lakes—that's who I really am. And as a kid, I had a great father. My father has passed away now, but he was an adventurer, actually a jeweler. So by by trade, he was simply a jeweler, watchmaker. But he knew everything about the out of doors and everything that did everything. He knew how ducks flew and how things swam, and so he taught me how to catch snakes because we just found every creature on the earth to be interesting. And I learned how to be a really good snake catcher. So I can dazzle my friends because a lot of my friends really don't like snakes. And so I can actually catch snakes very well and hold them for a while and tame them and then pet them and share them with people, pass them around. And <laughs> They appreciate that. <laughs> oh yeah, they love that. Yes. Yeah, some people won't even go near near the snakes I catch, but they're they're kind of interesting creatures. And my one big rule, which I've taught, I have two boys who are now in their early twenties and of course, I passed on the trade, so they know how to catch snakes well as well. But I've always said, but whatever we catch and look at, we must put back exactly where we found it. So everyone gets to go back unharmed, no matter what it is we examine. <laughs> well, that's great. Now, could you tell us, are there a couple pro tips to
0: bear in mind should we want to go catch snakes immediately <laughs> after this conversation?
1: <laughs> yes. So let me teach everybody how to catch a snake. So what you want, there are a couple of methods, but the best way is to make sure that you are wearing, first of all, long pants and shoes, because snakes really don't want to be caught. They don't seem to enjoy it, so to speak. And so when you're first running up to them, getting ready to catch them, they will sometimes turn around and snap at you. But of course, now I've never, I don't catch poisonous snakes, obviously, I'm not a crazy person. So it's, it's not really going to hurt you if they bite at you, but you still don't want to be bitten. So if you're wearing long pants and shoes, what you do is you get up and just gently, and I mean really gently, just lay your foot down on top of the snake as close to its head as you can get so that you've trapped it. So you've got your foot not on it in any harsh way, but just just kind of gently keeping it from moving and then you've got to get in there and get your fingers your thumb and forefinger right behind the snake's head right behind its jaws and at that point it can't turn there's a point where the snake's head because of its skull is fixed so if you catch a snake farther back on its body it is perfectly capable of whipping around and biting you. <laughs> so you and you don't like that it doesn't feel good but uh, if you catch it right behind the head you can hold on to it and then all snakes it's very strange if you hold them long enough they finally just decide that you're okay and, and then you can let go from behind their head and then they just kind of crawl around on your I don't I guess they don't crawl do they they slither around on your arm and and just seem to be quite happy to be with you so it just takes about usually three to five minutes, and then they just decide that it's okay to be captured. That's how you catch a snake.
0: Well, (laughs) I love that you went there. And it's thorough.
1: (laughs) Yes, yes. Well, you know, I'm a teacher, right?
0: (laughs) Well, now I practically feel like I can do it.
1: I think you should try it. I
0: don't think my wife will like it, but I'm intrigued to try it.
1: Give it a whirl. (laughs) Uh, And call me if you have any problems.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Can do, can do. Now your most recent book is called work it i'd I'd like to hear a little bit about what's the primary idea of this one
1: Sure, so this is my most recent book, and it's it actually is an act of love i've been I've been working with a a population recently that is not the population I've worked with for most of my adult life mostly i've been, I've worked with adult learners teaching assertiveness training and management and uh, communication skills. I really work mostly with communication skills in my career, but I've worked most recently now just because of a few invitations I've had to come into high schools and colleges, I've worked with a lot of people who are graduating from both high school and college and heading out on their first, I'm going to call it, career job. And I always try to say your career job is to be distinguished from when you delivered pizza in high school or did whatever it was you did back then. This is the job that you really think might become the thing that you could do for a very long time and hopefully aligns with your interests and passions. So I've been working a lot with that population of students and loving it, by the way. So a lot of times at the end of the talks I've been giving about how to put your best foot forward in an interview or how to discover what your passions are, people will come up and ask me for some kind of a reading resource. And I I didn't find one that I thought really fit all of what I believe, so I wrote one. It's one of those, there didn't seem to be one, so I wrote it, and so I wrote Work It, it's called Work It, Get In, Get Noticed, Get Promoted for young people who are just entering the career market. And it's a, it is a gift of love because I'm donating all of my royalties to youth organizations throughout the country. So it's my it's my latest little passion right now.
0: Oh, that's cool, that's cool. We have listeners often say, hey, how do I stand out? How do I do the get noticed part of this? So I'd love to get your perspectives here and and feel free to not be limited to folks who are in their very first career job, but those that are some years in. Yes. And so what are some of the top principles when it comes to getting noticed and standing out?
1: Absolutely. And and I would uh, want to point out just as you're sort of implying that, that really, when I wrote this book, a lot of people came to me who were well into their careers and said, I needed this book just because I'm changing careers. And I wanted to really learn what I needed to do to polish up my resume and do all the things that you need to do if you're going to get out there even in your mid career point. But so here are the things that I usually talk about. For one thing, I think that it's important to, I believe that almost everything in the world actually stems from excellent communication skills and I could talk about this for hours and hours but I believe that the way that we stand out the way that we can get noticed in the best way is to make sure that we have command of all of the vehicles that we use to communicate ourselves to other people and when I talk about communication I don't just mean sitting here talking I, I mean facial expression eye contact what you're doing with your hands, your actual vocal tone and loudness. I like to go into details about all of those things and make sure that I do my best when I'm working with people to bring all of the communication components into alignment so that someone really is an excellent, I always call it a walking, talking, audio, visual representation of who you are. And to master those sorts of skills, I think helps just about anyone to stand out. So good communication skills, being able to to say what i want to be positive to to be willing to take on projects that i'm asked to do that kind of moves over into having a positive attitude having a can do attitude i think that helps us to get noticed if we're if we're going to be hired or be promoted within the jobs we already have a lot of it has to do with Our intentions, I guess I would say. When I approach a job, when I approach a task that I've been assigned by my employer, do I approach it with a, sure, I'll do that. I'll take care of that sort of an attitude? Do I look like I am someone you want to be around? I think that has a lot to do with it too. And even the crabbiest of employers and supervisors do prefer to have people around them who have more of a positive personality. So showing our positive sides, I think also helps us to get noticed.
0: Okay, well, I'd love it if you could maybe unpack in a little bit of detail here. When it comes to folks doing it wrong, Uh what are some things that I would say show up frequently and are easy to overlook and what are the fixes for it?
1: Oh, great. That's a great question. So (laughs) there are a few things that I think that people initially do wrong. And and again, going back to communication, let me just break down communication for a second and then I'll address this. So when I talk about you, your overall you-ness, as I would call it, I like to talk about, as I've mentioned a couple of these already, but I want to mention all of them. So I like to talk about your facial expression, what it's doing, your eye contact, what's happening with eye contact. I like to talk about your posture, where your posture is, your use of hands or hand gestures. Those are your visual representations. And then there are three auditory ones, your voice tone, what the tone sounds like, your voice loudness, how loud you're being. And then finally, your verbal content, the actual words you're using when you go to talk to people. And within those seven components, There are things that people do right and wrong within each of those. Let me just start with facial expression. Uh, Yeah, let's do them all. A wrong and a right for all seven. So with facial expression, what we want to do is we want to start with what's called, technically, there's a word for everything, what's called a neutral to positive open facial expression. Now, what does that mean? It means that when you first look at me, I'm looking open. I look approachable. I have a neutral toward positive expression on my face, which means (laughs) I'm not scowling but I'm also not smiling wildly because if I smile (laughs) too soon and too much, I look kind of scary in a way. Like you might not want to approach me. So I work toward neutral, toward positive, skewing slightly toward positive when I first see you, when I first approach you. So when you first look at me, we know from a bunch of research here about first impressions. There are really two important first impressions. There is a first impression that's been really chronicled very recently, which now apparently occurs within about one second, actually under one second, a flicker of a first impression. And of course, a first impression that is is found within one second can be only your facial expression it can't be anything else because i haven't talked to you yet i haven't opened my mouth you don't know what i'm going to say so facial expression is the first first impression and it's important to make sure that it looks open and not closed not unfriendly and not wildly smiling because that as i mentioned looks a little weird. Mm -hmm. So the things that we do wrong are sometimes we don't pay attention to that very, very first facial expression moment when I have the opportunity to impress you toward the positive. We know another thing about first impressions. And that is that once you've made a first impression, it is almost impossible to alter it, almost impossible, the research shows. And and I mentioned that there are two first impressions, that one second first impression, and then another first impression occurs within about, we, we believe, five to 15 seconds of meeting someone. I personally think it's within about 10 to 15 seconds that we're making that first impression, which is now based on a little bit more. I can see your face moving. It's a little more plastic. I can see you smiling at me, which is the next thing I think is important to make sure after I have presented that initial neutral to positive open facial expression that I immediately go into a smile. A smile is a very, very important personal trait to have. And I usually spend a lot of time talking to people about the importance of smiles. We know from all sorts of research, which gets reported quite a bit in Forbes magazine and every other place, we know that smiling does all kinds of things for our bodies, lowers cortisol, brings up serotonin, lowers blood pressure, lowers our body temperature actually, lowers heart rate, does all kinds of things for us, the people, we, 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 the people who are smiling, but it also transmits to the person we are smiling at. It actually allows the other person to experience those positive sorts of effects as well. So that smile is an important thing to cultivate. And I sometimes come across people who decide that they're personal shtick is that I'm too cool to smile. <laughs> you know what? Have you ever met somebody like that? Like, I'm just not going to smile. I'm not smiling. It's like they're brooding
0: and yeah. they're sipping a latte and yeah. they're thinking some deep thoughts. <laughs>
1: exactly. They're deep and they're edgy. <laughs> and so, so smiling doesn't really fit in. But I try to tell people, look, you know, really smiling is one of the best things that you can possibly do. And also research shows there's a lot of crazy research out there on smiling Research actually shows that people who smile, rather than seeming less intelligent or or, or less with it, we actually ben, get, we've actually received the benefit of the doubt that we probably are smiling because we are intelligent, we are in control, and we do know what we're talking about. So smiling is an important thing. So the next mistake I want to talk about, of course, is the, res, the reverse of that, just thinking I'm not going to smile because it's not worth it, I'm too busy, or I'm too cool. I think that's a big mistake. So facial expression, very, very important.
0: Well, I'd love to talk, if I could, at first about when it comes to the smile, I think some people would say, Hey, I'm not anti-smile, but it just doesn't seem authentic or genuine. And can't you kind of tell when a smile is, is real versus fake based on wrinkles elsewhere in the face that appear or don't appear? So what are your thoughts in terms of smiling naturally and cultivating a more sort of natural smile that is real?
1: Well, Good question, and of course there's I don't know if you're referring to this or if you know about it, but there have been a bunch of studies out there that talk about real versus fake smiles, and that technically when we put subjects in a room and show them smiling faces they're pretty they're pretty much able to tell whether it's a fake smile or a real smile on the photograph of the person they're being shown so this is where I go with that, so that we do know that we do know that fake smiles fake smiling is better than not smiling at all no kid, yeah, for a couple of reasons.
0: Ooh, insight.
1: Yeah, so for a couple of reasons. One of them is that, this is such cool stuff, by the way, I don't want to get all geeky on you, but. Please do. (laughs) So here's some cool things. We know that there is a brain-body connection. There just is. And we know it from lots of ways. So for for instance, if I were to sit here right now and tense up every muscle in my body and I held it and held it and held it and held it, pretty soon my brain would start to assess what my body was doing and think, something must be wrong. We're all tensed up. And I can actually talk my brain into experiencing anxiety simply by tensing my muscles up. Conversely, we know through meditation, deep relaxation, that if I meditator. If I think of a relaxing thought, I sit in a room, I quiet my mind, I can actually do things like relieve muscle pain and actually lower heart rate because my body is basically listening to what my brain is thinking and saying, all must be well, I guess I can relax, I guess there's no danger here. So this brain-body connection is quite real and verifiable. And we know that that smiling, when we smile, what happens is that our brain is monitoring what our body is doing. Our brain actually senses the muscles of our face coming back in a smile and it senses that those muscles are coming back to smile and says something nice must be happening. We're smiling and that brain actually releases serotonin, the feel-good hormone, simply by sensing that the smile muscles are being pulled back. There was a very interesting study that was done. This was by a man at Stanford. He's passed away now, but he actually did a study. This was a while back, actually, and then there were several others that have have been done since then using other methods. But what he did was he had people, he had subjects at Stanford actually make two different sounds and he just simply had them make these sounds. So, so one person, one group of people was asked to make the sound of E, E, a long E, E, E. which mimics a smile. E, E. It's like I'm talking to my baby. Yeah. E, E. (laughs) E, And it pulls your mouth back. And then another group of people make a U sound. U. And when you do a U, your mouth turns down. You it looks like it's sort of a downward turned mouth. So E versus U. And based on what they, were, what they were making, the sound they were making, they were asked to rate their moods. <laughs> and the people who were making the E sounds were actually rating themselves as much happier. They felt good after making that sound and not so much with the people who were pursing their lips. They didn't feel as good doing that. And that was just simply with making making sounds. Uh, this, this man, by the way, uh, if anybody wants to look up cool research projects, this man's name was uh, Robert. If I say his name, I'll have to spell it for everybody because I believe it was pronounced Zyance, Zyance, but it he was, I think he was Yugoslavian or something. And it's actually spelled Z a j. O-N-C, believe it. It looks like Zajonk, I think. But it's (laughs) pronounced That makes me smile saying it. Yeah, I know. (laughs) 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 Zajonk. So he did all kinds of interesting research projects with how people feel based on body language.
0: Well, So it's intriguing. So it sounds like part of the equation is so a fake smile beats a no smile but a real Uh smile is even better. And we can get there by sort of just naturally putting our body in the spot, whether that's meditating or have some quiet time or saying E. So are there other sort of quick hit tactics that just kind of put you in a naturally smiley
1: place? Yeah. So good question. One thing that, that I suggest is that when you first meet somebody, in order to think of a genuine smile, now I I happen to be a really smiley person. I like to smile and I, I think I must know the benefits of smiling because I do feel good when I smile and I do smile genuinely at people. But for people who are just thinking, eh, you know, humanity <laughs> 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 eh, not another person I have to smile at. So if you're just not feeling it or you're not you know, if it's not inside of you to smile, I always try to suggest to people well, as you're meeting somebody, just think think of something about them, if you know anything about them, or you're even looking at them, think about the most positive thing you either know or see about that person. Just go ahead, and as you walk up to someone, it's just a good way to focus, It's what I suggest to people, is to say, as I walk up to someone, just think, beautiful red hair, or just something, just track on whatever you can, or... This person just received an award. And so whatever it is I know about this person that makes me like them or feel good toward them, it could be superficial like red hair or significant like something that they achieved. But one way or another, if I can track on some truly personal thing about that person I'm about to smile at, it will certainly make my smile more genuine
0: hmm Oh, I like that. Thank you. All right. Well, we talked smiles in depth and I love it. So <laughs> maybe we won't get through the seven and that's fine, but let's hear about eye contact.
1: So eye contact, very, very important. So there are a couple things that people do wrong with eye contact, things that we do right with it. But I spend time talking about eye contact, even though it's in a sense, part of facial expression, because it has its own personal set of important rules. So for one thing, it's very important no matter how shy we are or reluctant we might be to do so, it's very important that we make eye contact with people we're interacting with. Very important whether that's our our boss, our coworkers, our children, our spouses, people we're interacting with in the subway, whatever it is we're doing. If we're going to interact with someone, we want to make that eye contact. There are a couple times when it's absolutely imperative and that's when you're either Giving information, sharing some information with someone, like here are directions on how to do something, or when you are giving instructions. If you are, have a position, a, a position at work where you need to orient someone to a job or tell them how to do something, very important that you make eye contact with the person at that point. It just helps lock in. Here's what I'm telling you. Please pay attention. So eye contact, very, very important. But the other part of eye contact is sort of a rule of eye contact is that we make it but we also break it we mostly make it and then we look away for a little flicker of a moment and then look back again we want to make sure we make direct eye contact but that we break eye contact as well now some people will ask me well when i look away where do i look well anywhere <laughs> it's just it won't matter just look away for a second and then look back if you don't break eye contact whatsoever you're going to appear one of one of two ways. <laughs> there are two types of people who don't break eye contact. The first would be an aggressive person, someone who is uh, intimidating me. And if you think about somebody, whoever it is you might be thinking of right now, who might have made eye contact with you and never looked away, just looked at you and looked at you and looked at you, it starts to get un- intense and it starts to become uncomfortable unless you just look away for a second, just break it and come back. The other set of people who don't break eye contact are people who are in love. <laughs> so if you're in love with someone or you're romantically inclined, and so just think back to if you're in love right now or you've been in love, how you just don't want to look away from that person's eyes. And that's a good thing. It's, it's an energy exchange. But when we're first meeting people out there in the world or working at, with people at work, we want to break that eye contact so as to not appear either romantic or aggressive. Now, I believe that there are some people who use eye contact quite deliberately to be aggressive and know that they are showing you that they are in a position of power by not breaking it. Okay,
0: I believe there was a, maybe an office episode about this. Don't break eye contact and don't break the handshake as <laughs> yeah, a means of, of yes. showing your, yes. Yes. your power and your authority there. And so I guess I look away maybe more than as optimal just because I'm thinking hard like about what they've said or what is the implication of the stuff. So any thoughts associated with the ratio? It sounds like you're saying you pretty much want to be on eye contact with brief breaks. How do we think about thinking when it comes to conversing with someone while also making eye contact?
1: Well, if you're someone who looks away a lot, one of my suggestions, because some people do that, some people want to close their eyes, in fact, while they're thinking. And so... I suggest that if it's a if it's a really important conversation, it's going to continue for a while. That you do what I call pre-calling it. I, I always suggest to people that if you have some kind of a thing that you really want to do, that steps slightly outside the norm of what a normal interaction might look like, that you just pre-call it. That you say, as Pete, you say you know, I really want to focus hard on what we're about to discuss this afternoon. And I want to tell you that sometimes if I'm not looking at you and I'm looking down, it's because I'm thinking very hard about what you're saying to me. So I just want to let you know that that's just something I do in order to truly absorb what it is you're saying. And I think it's okay to say that sort of thing. Then the yeah. person goes, oh, all right, okay. And they kind of get it. Uh, because a lot of times if we look away, One of the things that if I'm talking and you look away for a long period of time, it tends to make the speaker run out of energy. I start to lose my energy because I'm thinking, I sort of trail off a little bit like, oh, okay, is he still here? Is he not? I'm not getting that feedback loop. So making, continuing that eye contact with the person we're speaking with is actually completing a communication feedback loop, which is telling me as you look at me, I am with you. I am with you in this conversation. So if you tend to break it a lot, I would just I would just pre-call it and say, this is what I do in order to concentrate.
0: Okay, thank you. And when it comes to making the eye contact, are you looking right at one eyeball? Shifting <laughs> two eyeballs? Which eyeball should we look at? Eyebrow? Nose?
1: <laughs> I love your questions. Okay, <laughs> this is going to take hours. Let's have a, like a five-hour interview. Because okay? <laughs> I love these questions. So there are a lot of things about where we look. So for one thing, we want to try to look at both eyes. Now, the closer we are to someone, if I'm sitting very, very close to you, you can tell that I'm shifting from eye to eye. If we're eight feet away, we're not really actually shifting eyeball to eyeball. We're just looking at the person's eye eye area. And if we're way, way, way back, like 50 feet away, then actually eye contact gets perceived in the upper third of the face. We know that from research. So anything in the upper third of the face is perceived as eye contact. But the farther away we are from someone, the more it seems like eye contact, the closer we are to someone, the more important it is to look directly in the eyeballs. So we do our best to move back and forth between the two eyes. However, I always suggest to someone, this happened to me the other day, I was talking to someone who had one eye that was impaired. It was clearly not a functioning eyeball. And so I didn't want him to feel self-conscious. We were standing very closely together in an art gallery, actually, an art museum. And this was a guard, and he was telling me stories about the artwork. And I wanted to make sure that I just focused on the eye that was working because I didn't want him to actually think I was assessing the other eye. Mm -hmm. So I stayed on that eyeball really out of politeness. Plus it's the only one that's functioning. So if he... If he wants to see me as looking at him, I'm going to need to look at that eyeball. So I actually tailor it to what's happening with someone if they have any kind of a, of a, of a visual impairment. Otherwise, looking back and forth both eyes is probably the best idea. <laughs> I love that question.
0: Okay, cool. Well, thank you. So, all right. So we got the facial expressions. We got the eye contact. How about posture?
1: So posture, posture says a lot about us and there's some weirdly interesting studies about posture. So posture says a whole bunch of things that we might or might not expect. A lot of times we might assume that posture might tell others that we are attentive or that we are organized. It also, for some reason, makes people decide whether we're intelligent or not. Good posture is associated with intelligence, which is not a bad thing to have, is that kind of association. So posture tells us everything and you have... You have posture whether you're seated or standing or walking. You always have posture. So a few things about posture. One of the things is that sometimes I like to talk to women just for a moment, as as and then I'll bring men back in. But a lot of times women got taught, especially older generations of women, far older than you or I are, a lot of older generations of women got taught to stand somewhat sideways in what was called in the 1950s model's pose. And model's pose said that we put our our feet together very closely and then we turn slightly sideways in order to show off the most pleasant and slender aspects of our (laughs) figure. (laughs) How's that? So, boy, a little bit of sexism from the 50s here. That is not a powerful posture, however. And if I were to stand kind of kind of sideways while I talk to you, it would look weird in modern day world. But what we want to do instead is to stand, I like to call it architecturally, so that my feet are slightly apart. My most powerful position for posture is to stand with my feet slightly apart so I don't look like a big tall thing that comes down to a tiny little point. So feet slightly apart and then I want to make my upper body match my lower body. So I bring my shoulders back and into position so that I'm standing in a in a in a very comfortable but we'll call it spread out sort of way. So that I'm not deliberately trying to look tiny. Now with that 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 shoulders back suggestion there, a lot of times women start to wrinkle their noses at me if I say that because women become self conscious about their chests, and so I generally like a women doesn't matter if your chest is big or small, you like it or you don't, no matter what it is you think about it, I promise that you will look better, more powerful, more assertive, more in charge of yourself with your shoulders back than if you're slumping forward and trying to cover up your chest. You will simply just look better. So taking that position is very, very important. Taking that position of I am here, I'm no bigger or smaller than I really am, and I own my own space. It helps you to to assume that that everyone in the room understands that you're here and you're here to stay. Back to the brain-body thing for a moment, because I think this is interesting stuff too. Very interesting study was done with shy people. Shy people were asked, in this case, to sit in a meeting. And you know how a shy person might sit, kind of folded over, minimalizing themselves so that they don't appear to really be present. They were told by the researchers to sit in this meeting. You don't even have to talk, just sit there. But in this case, spread yourself out. Just spread out a little bit, you know, spread your legs out, put your arms on the on the arms of the chair, put your shoulders back, own your space in the meeting. You don't have to do anything but that. And then they were asked after this meeting to self-rate their own ability to be assertive. And when they actually spread their bodies out their brains, basically listening to what the body was doing, the brain thought, wow, you're sitting there as if you own your space. You're sitting there as if you're a person who knows what he or she is talking about. You must be feeling good about yourself. And they rated themselves completely more in control and more assertive just by spreading out their bodies.
0: Very good. All right. So shoulders back, owning the space. Anything else on posture?
1: Sure. So you have posture when you're seated as well. So when you're seated, you want to make sure you unfold your legs if at all possible and put your feet on the floor. That's the most positive and powerful position to sit in when you are seated. So making sure that you do all those things, arms at your side when you're standing or arms on your lap or on the top of the table or on the arms of your chair if you're seated. Not fidgeting, not playing with your cuticles, not doing any of those sorts of things, but making sure that you look like you are comfortable and calm with your arms and your hands. Anything else
0: associated with hands?
1: Oh, yeah, we can talk about hands next. So your hands are saying tons of things about you. And generally speaking, I would say that if you're that you probably all everybody, all your listeners out there are probably using their hand motions perfectly correctly, unless you've received some kind of feedback to the contrary, which could be that somebody says to you, whoa, you sure use your hands a lot. (laughs) Or if they just start watching your hands while you're talking and, and it looks like there's a bumblebee between the two of you, then you're probably using your hands in excess. What we want to do with our hands is to make our hands match our message. We do want to definitely use our hands because hands help to describe what we're talking about. They actually help our brains to continue thinking right. For instance, if I were describing to you a beautiful park with a with a lake and swans on it, even as I'm sitting here talking to you right now, I'm actually moving my hands because I'm thinking about a park and a lake and swans. It actually helps my brain to visualize what I want to describe. So hands actually help guide our words in certain ways. But we want to use our hands because it also helps the listener, if they're looking at us, to know what we're talking about. If I kept my hands right at my sides and I never, ever moved them, it would look stiff and rigid and it would look like I wasn't coming across in a natural way. Another thing about hands is that we like to take a tip from newscasters. Newscasters know to use their hands, but they keep their hands within a fairly small area because... They really are in a box, basically. When, when we view a newscaster on television, we see a talking head, as we call it, sitting in a box. And if they were to gesture way, way, way outside of that box area, we would lose their hands. So they stay within a small area. And I always suggest to people that you do the same, that you keep your gestures within about, a, we'll call it a foot and a half area outside of your own body.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, this is so good. Thank you. Well, I'd like to talk about voice, but I'm also watching the time, and so maybe you tell me, is there anything else you really want to make sure to emphasize before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things?
1: Well, so I would like to mention, if possible, voice tone, because I think it's very important. And again, just knowing what I know about working with people and doing so much work in communication, it's a very good idea for all of us, men and women both, to stay in the lower ranges of our voice tone. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'll do that. <laughs> that's the problem. I don't want everybody to now start walking around talking like a, like a truck driver who smokes a cigar, but <laughs> we do stay and we want to stay in that lower range because that's our power range. That's where we sound more like we know what we're talking about. And so speaking very quickly to women, women have something that's called a widely varying intonational pitch pattern. Isn't that something? And it means that we go up and down and up. It's very, very musical, very melodic, but that uppermost pitch pattern is where we lose our power, where we go, well, hello, and it's really high. We want to stay in that lower range because it lends more credibility to what we're talking about. So cultivating a lower pitch pattern is a good idea for men and women both.
0: Beautiful. Well, now can you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring?
1: (laughs) Okay. Well, so gosh, I have so many, but well, there's the most obvious one is really a quote that comes from Mahatma Gandhi because it it is really what I believe and it's one that gets quoted a lot. And then I'd love to give you a second one, which is really my is It's something that I say that has helped me so much in life. But But the one that really is in my soul is the idea that we should all be the change we want to see in the world. I think that says so much because sometimes even I, you know, I, I get out there all the time and I'm working with people. I, I work with young people all the time. And, and sometimes I even am in my hotel room and I'm thinking, I'm just one person. And, and maybe I did talk to 100 people tonight, but that's just 100 people. And how many millions of people are there? And I start to think about one tiny little drop of of water in the ocean. And then I think, no, no, by behaving this way, by being the change I want to see, if we all did that, we would create an amazing movement uh, of change. So I, I've always loved that particular quote. And I, I would want the world to know that that's what I would love to live by is that idea. But I also want to tell you another quote because it's something that I, is really my quote and it comes from my life experience. And I've told so many people this, and it's actually in the book too that I wrote, that that what I believe is that, that there are definitely times in your life when you cannot tell the bad news from the good especially when you're stuck right in the middle of a situation and you could think that the worst thing in the world was happening to you. And lo and behold, it's about to become the best thing that ever happened to you. So I like to encourage people to know that you don't know the bad news from the good until you get down the road a little bit and figure out what the repercussions are from whatever it is you're experiencing. Oh, lovely.
0: Thank you. Now you've cited a lot of studies. Do you have a favorite?
1: <laughs> I'm a kind of a study junkie because of what I teach. And so we've already talked a lot about the smiling studies, and there are a lot of them about lowering blood pressure. And I, I even know these are legitimate studies, so I don't ever quote studies that are that I can't really find the abstracts on. But recently, as since we've already covered smiling, I have been enjoying so many studies out there on walking. So I am talking to lots of audiences about walking. We know we kind of know intrinsically how walking works. It's just a great thing to do, but it's a mood enhancer and it's a creativity enhancer. It does all kinds of things. There are, there are some great studies. There's one that came from, well, from the Midwest, not so far from Chicago, from Iowa State University. There was a study that they did of of getting people to walk, subjects to walk. And it, all they needed to do was walk for 12 minutes, 12 minutes. So this isn't very long. It's just getting up and moving. And they called it, <laughs> in the study, it's called incidental ambulation. That means walk. <laughs> Don't you love that? Incidental ambula- ambulation, which means walking without a purpose, I believe. But it, they just got people to get up and walk. And in this study, they even told the people in the study, okay, we want you to get up and move around for a little bit before you come back to the task at hand, which was really a fake task. They were really testing walking, of course. And they even told them, when you come back from walking, we're sorry, you'll probably be tired and you might not really be in the mood to finish this test, but we just want you to get up and take a walk for a moment. So they even negatively biased the experience of the walkers. But but of course, when the when the walkers came back, their mood was improved. They were better able to focus on the test they were taking. All good things happened from that in mere in a mere twenty in twelve minutes, basically. And there are a whole bunch of other ones. It uh, there so walking tests recently, walking research is amazing. Uh Stanford University figured out that that walking for just five to fifteen minutes increases what's called divergent thinking, which is what they what they mean is creativity. And it also helps with plasticity of the brain. Cognitive performance improves while you're walking. Uh, Max Planck Institute did a whole bunch of studies on it and found out that that cognitive, basically just thinking, the ability to think improves while you're walking. The only caveat there is that you need to walk at your own preferred speed and it creates a rhythm in your brain that your brain enjoys, which facilitates thinking. So I'm loving studies recently on walking because they are reminding me to get up and walk every now and then. Lovely. Thank you. How about a favorite book? Well, I probably could be quoting business books since this is a business, but you know, I, my favorite books are really not business books because sometimes I just need to get out of my own head. Uh, one of my favorite all-time books is The Right Stuff by Tom Wolfe. It's it's reportage at its best. It's before Tom Wolfe ventured over into novels and fiction. You know, He was really one of the best reportage writers in the world. And The Right Stuff actually reviews our space program in the United States, a brilliantly work, written book, just a fun book to read. And So interesting just about what astronauts had to go through. So I'm loving that book. And another one I want to give a shout-out about I read two summers ago, and it's Bill Bryson. I happen to love Bill Bryson's writing, and he wrote a book called One Summer, America 1927. And it's, it's a factual book about all the things that happened in America in 1927. And it is a crazy good read. It's just, it's exciting, all the things that happened back then. So I, I recommend that book is a, just a great book to relax with. Oh, thank you. And how
0: about a favorite tool, something that it helps you be awesome at your job?
1: uh you know i'm an I'm an article reader, so i I know that there's that the movement out there that what they call the you know t l d r which stands for too long didn't read world you know where oh that's too long, I'm not gonna read it uh, that's not why I like articles, although articles really are quick as opposed to books. I like articles because I can sample a lot of different ideas in a in a short period of time if I have an hour to read before I go to bed, I can read articles and and learn. 10 different things about science and about dinosaurs and about human emotion and whatever else if I just read the right articles. So uh, for me, since I'm an article reader, I happen to like Pocket. I subscribe to Pocket. Pocket sends me all great kinds of suggestions. I read them all, but I like it. I love Reddit. There's no doubt I like Reddit, even though people kind of laugh. And yes, sometimes I click on the funny tab for Reddit and Look at funny things because I think that's good for my soul, <laughs> and uh, I also like to read. Uh, I like to read outside of the United States about the United States because it's a very interesting perspective. When I, I discovered it, when I I have to travel a lot for work, and so sometimes I'm reading about the U.S. while I'm sitting in London, and so <laughs> there there's a different perspective when you're not the U.S. talking about the U.S. So one of the 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 newspapers I like to read is called the Globe and Mail. It's Canadian. And it's it's so it's very close to us, but it has very interesting U.S. perspectives. So I I like uh, I like the Globe and Mail. And then finally, I I like the uh, something called the browser. But it is it's in this case, it costs money, whereas Reddit and Pocket and StumbleUpon are all free. I think the browser is about 35 bucks a year or something, but they send me really good suggestions for articles to read as well.
0: Oh, very cool. Thank you. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with audiences?
1: Yeah, you know, it's, when I am working with audiences, I, the thing that I say that I think most people resonate with, and it's usually after, of course, I've been talking to them for a while, is that is this, I tell people, you know, in human relations, in communication, in your life, as you walk around and and illustrate who you are, everything counts. That's I even have a slide at the end of most things that says, everything counts. How you talk, what you do, what you look like, how you interact with people, how you think, your your work product, your actions, your thoughts, everything counts. Everything is you. And so you don't ever get to get away from you. And you don't really ever get to do something that doesn't represent you, even if you wish you <laughs> you know could. Whatever it is you're doing, it counts. And so I I think that that's good news because I would say if everything counts from my facial expression to how I treat people, then why wouldn't I want everything to count in a direction that makes me the very best possible person I could be?
0: Mm. Yes, thank you. And Denise, if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them?
1: So I've got a website. It's denisemdudley.com, M like for my middle mm-hmm. initial. So com. And of course, I'm also on LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter, the usual and I'm also the founder of a very big training company called Skillpath Seminars, which is a, a very big company. And so I've sold it, but I'm still quite involved in it all the time. So if there were no other way that you could remember to reach me, you could call Skillpath and they could put me right through. So um, that's those, those would be good ways to reach me.
0: Beautiful. And do you have a final challenge or a call to action you'd issue to folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs?
1: Yep, I do. I've thought about what I'd want to say and and it's this and i'm a huge believer in this i want to strive for myself and my call to action for everyone else is that i guess i'll describe it this way that that you know there are times when you meet somebody and and you'll think of someone right now like when you meet when you meet somebody and it could be in the grocery store checkout line it's somebody you work with it's someone you're related to but when you walk away from them you feel better about yourself or you feel better about the world or or you feel like it's not such a bad place or something. I call it being expanded, that somehow I, I feel expanded because of having been in the presence of a certain person. And then there's the other type of person where when I walk away from them, and again, it could be an incidental interaction in a grocery store. I feel what I call contracted. I feel like my energy has been sucked out of me and I have to sort of tuck in and make myself small for a while in order to protect what energy I have left. Expanded or contracted is what I call it because it feels like that to me. And so my call to action for everyone is to be that person who expands others, that by the time you finish an interaction with someone, no matter what that interaction is, that they walk away feeling better about themselves or the situation.
0: Beautiful. Well, Denise, this has been so fun, so helpful. Thanks for going into the depths with the research and the goodies. I wish you tons of luck with your book, Work It and all you're doing.
1: Oh, thank you so very much. And gosh, I hope everybody gets out there and catches snakes and does everything else (laughs) as a result of this.
0: (laughs) I really love Denise's take for that real smile going to think about the most positive thing you know or see about that person and focus in on that to trigger a real smile. And even if you can't trigger a real smile, a fake smile is better than no smile. So I think that's pretty handy and hopefully will bring a little bit more warmth and joy into your day and to all of those that you interact with and make you look all the more impressive and having gravitas and like someone who is trustworthy and worthy of promotion. So Again, if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep293. And if you haven't already, I hope you push the subscribe button. You'll hear from our next guest. It is Todd Henry. You may have heard him from the Accidental Creative Podcast. He is talking about how to manage creative folk to get the very best from them. Until next time, peace.